I didn't realize this until a few years ago, but as an actor, I realized that my mission is to like reach out to either the person playing the game or the people watching the show or the people sitting in the audience and say, I got you. For the next hour, hour and a half, or if you're playing a game, eight hours, whatever it is, for the next amount of time that we are together, I am going to go through all these experiences. I'm going to feel the feels. I'm going to like, I'm going to rip my heart out because I have, I, I'm an overfeeler and I am uniquely created to be able to do this for you. You don't have to do anything but sit there and believe my story. Welcome to The Art in Yourself. I'm John Lister, and this is part two of my two-part conversation with Anjali Bimani. You mentioned branches of the tree and that Symmetra is one of those branches and voiceover is one of those branches. You also mentioned how important it was to you seeing that she was an Indian character mm-hmm. and that that representation was important to you. How much has that played a role in your career and how much has it been uh, an obligation of yours or, uh, or difficult or easy to play a type rather than a stereotype when it comes to that? So that's such a deep question. There's so much to unpack there. Um, Let's start with when metamorphoses went to Broadway, because this is a good sort of, long arc story. So during that time, <clears throat> there were actually surprisingly three Indian people doing separate shows on Broadway, which back then was quite rare. It was me uh, in my show. Asif Manvi was doing his show and, um, and uh, Anil Kumar was doing Tale of the Allergist's Wife. And so this paper, India Abroad and India New York both came and did features on each one of us. I remember some of the questions being about like, what does it feel like to be a representative and to be forging ahead for Indians? And I was like, I don't, I didn't say it in these words, but I'm like, and it's not that deep for me. Like, I'm just doing my thing. And for me, especially because my whole career had been theater up to that point, my race had never been an issue in terms of my casting, especially working with Mary. Um, because yes, it was a part of who I was, but it wasn't the defining characteristic. It wasn't, I was, it wasn't like, oh, she's the Indian one. Well, you played my daughter, for God's sake. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, I played your daughter. I played Raymond Fox's daughter. I played Chris, I played all sorts of white guys' daughters back then. Um, so, so it was never really something that I, I mean, obviously I wasn't going to play like Lori in Oklahoma unless it was an all Indian Oklahoma. Um, but I was, it just hadn't been a part of my life that it was a defining thing. And so I, I also didn't see success as an actor in terms of how high I can get. I saw it as I'm making a living doing the thing I want to do just like a doctor does, just like an engineer does. I make a living doing the thing I got to do. And then everything else is gravy above that. Sure. So I didn't feel that responsibility until people started talking about it and asking me about it. And even then I sort of shied away, not shied away from it, but I, I wanted to eliminate the idea that any one person must be the representative of their race. Because not only can no human being do that, 
entirely by themselves. But it then means that that one depiction or that one show or that one TV show or that one song or whatever the thing that brought them to the public, into the public eye was, that that must be everything. That must be the, the thing for, to represent all Indians. And that does a disservice to everyone because we are all so complex. There are so many stories. There are so many Indian actors and actresses. There are so many shows. There are so many conditions. There's so much to cover. But the extra obligation of layering that on top of your career seems like even so much more responsibility than is necessary. Which is another reason why I was like, dudes, please don't do that. To, like, I, 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 I'm having a hard enough time making a living. Like, sure. like this is my, like, I got to do my thing. And it's the same as not. This is not comparing me at all to Denzel Washington. But the year that Denzel Washington got the Oscar and Halle Berry got the Oscar and and Sidney Poitier was uh, got the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Oscars, I remembered. I can't remember which one of them it was, but it was either him or Sidney Poitier both talking about like, I don't want to be the best black actor. Mm-hmm. I'm the best. This isn't about that. Like, it's great that I'm the first black actor to get there. So the first black actress and all of this, but that's not what this is about. I, I'm an actor. I'm an actress. And that now I feel like there is more freedom in that department because there are so many people of my same heritage out there. Interestingly enough, I will also say that since there has become more representation and since there are more South Asians in the you know mainstream, I have ended up being like I've I've ended up having to play more specifically Indian roles than I ever have in my life. That's interesting. So it kind of went the other way around. Yeah, for me it did, because I think it's a double-edged sword when you insist on everything being accurate, quote-unquote, representation, then sometimes people forget about just us all being people. Yeah. And that there are, you know, it's it's lovely. I love it when there are stories where, again, that's only one aspect of who I am or who you are, or who anyone else is. That's why I love Overwatch because why, while there is so much representation in that game and, and, and whether it's ethnicity, whether it is gender orientation, whether it is sexual orientation, whether it is disabilities, whatever it is, there's, there's, there are a lot, there's so much there, but those things are, there's no one thing that defines any one of those characters. Right. There's no one characteristic of them. They are a combination of their unique backgrounds and their unique experiences and whether they took those unique experiences and went to the light side or the dark side. Which is clearly what makes them so relatable to people like my son, because they're actual fully formed non-caricatures. They're actual characters. Right. And the same thing with Apex. Apex has, has taken that ball and run with it too, because they, they such incredible, complex beings that get to, that people invite into their homes and, and play as. Because that's the other thing about games that's so beautiful is that it gives the person who is playing them this agency. It's not me telling the story and you watching it. It's me helping you tell the story because you are me. He's choosing you to be his avatar in that moment. Yeah. And then the cool thing about that is when you get to, and I've said this many times before, when you see a hero or play a hero that you identify with somehow, then you get to identify that hero in yourself and you take that out into the world because you have been in a position of having that agency, of experiencing that empowerment. And you can take that out in the world and do good with it. You can also take it out in the world and be an asshole with it. But you could take that out in the world I- idealistically 
people who maybe have felt underrepresented for any reason, even if it's just I'm socially awkward and I don't feel comfortable going out, if they're in there playing Rampart with this huge personality and feeling powerful, they're having that experience that they might not have been able to have without it. Without there being any sort of, not necessarily no stakes, but there's no way to get hurt in that process. Yes. Well, and and it's like I was saying before about the journey of metamorphoses. As an actor, I didn't realize this until a few years ago, but as an actor, I realized that my mission is to like reach out to either the person playing the game or the people watching the show or the people sitting in the audience and say, I got you. For the next hour, hour and a half, or if you're playing a game, eight hours, whatever it is, for the next amount of time that we are together, I am going to go through all these experiences. I'm going to feel the feels. I'm going to like, I'm going to rip my heart out because I have, I, I'm an overfeeler and I am uniquely created to be able to do this for you. You don't have to do anything but sit there and believe my story and invest in it with your heart. And at the end of the day, when you put down the controller, when you put down, when you shut off the TV, when you leave the theater, you will have been through this without having to actually go through it. So you have the benefit of that experience. You know, Romeo and Juliet is a perfect example. It's one of the reasons why I I loved doing that play both times that I got to do it. The, The time with you and the two years earlier is that arc of emotions that Juliet goes through in the course of that show, that's, there's everything. There is everything you could possibly imagine experiencing. And to be able to have that and know that someone in the audience somewhere is going to take some moment of that with them on their journey. And it's going to have just, you know, like maybe just like tipped the kaleidoscope just a tiny bit. So they see the world slightly differently. That's that's an indelible mark that you get to have on someone's journey, you know? And if they don't like it, they get to leave the theater and not freaking think about it anymore or shut off the TV and be like, screw it. I don't, okay, cool. You don't have to take it in. But if you want to, if you want to have that experience, I got you. Let's freaking do it. So you can go get the things that you want that you feel like you can't. Look, Maurice Sendak, Great, one of the greatest children's authors, quote unquote, children's authors of our time, who I was blessed in, I cannot tell you how lucky I feel to have known him and worked with him. He, um, he has said many times, I don't write for children, you know, and he has also said children can, he'd said it in different words, much more poetic words than I have, but children get how dark the world is. It's adults that don't want to see it. Children get it. Young people get it. We fight against it as grownups more than I think we do as children. It's just, you just, you're in, you know, you're, you're taking it in, you're experiencing life and you're allowing yourself to feel all the big feels. And I think it's our experience and, and our negative experiences that make us tamp down on that. But when you come into the world, you're, you're here to take it in and feel it all. And, you know, everybody goes to therapy to be able to process it afterwards. Now, I I love feeling things. It's one of the greatest gifts that my father gave to me um, was he was a guy who just felt things in a big way. Everything. He was a big feeler. And he, by example, taught me not to be afraid of 
not just showing my emotions, but having them. That's beautiful. And he didn't realize that he was doing that. Um, and interestingly enough, my father, who was a surgeon, my father and mother met doing a play in medical school. Oh, wow. And my father always wanted to be an actor. And he even said to me, like maybe five or 10 years before he passed, I, I asked him, if you weren't a doctor, what would, what, do you, what would you have wanted to be? And he said, oh, well, I've been an actor for sure. So to have that blessing, like, it's amazing enough that an Indian family was totally behind their kid wanting to go into theater. Yeah. But to also know that it was my dad's, like, lifelong dream, come on. You mentioned working with Maurice Sendak. There are not many people in this world who have made me feel as much as that man has made me feel. How and when did you work with him and what was that like? You're going you're gonna to hate me. You're going to hate me for this one. So remember how I said I just say yes to things before I'm entirely sure if I can do them? Sure, yeah. So I had worked at Berkeley Rep several times before, and I had gotten this audition to do two one-act operas there that were being translated by Tony Kushner and designed by Maurice Sendak. What? Yeah. And I had worked with the artistic director. I'd done Pentecost out there. I'd done Metamorphoses out there. Um, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a coloratura soprano, but like a, like a musical theater soprano. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I can, sure, I'm, I'm going to audition for this. I'll sing Glitter and Be Gay. I'll make something happen. So I was like, let me go in and do another audition. Uh, I don't know. Let's hope I get it. And You I knew who it. Tony Kushner and Marie Sendak were, yeah? Of course I did. Yeah. I knew who they were. But I'm just saying, like, the chances of me getting to do an opera, I was not. Gotcha. I was not thinking that that was going to happen and certainly not the lead. Right. And uh, so thankfully, Tony Tacconi, who I adore, he's the artistic, he was the artistic director of Berkeley Rep and he was directing it as well, directing these two pieces as well. And because of my physical abilities that he knew from Metamorphoses already, um, that combined with the voice, I think, was what ultimately made him cast me because I was going to have to not just play this Eastern European ingenue in one opera, but I was going to have to be a bird in the second one. And we weren't sure how that was going to happen and all that. Cause this was going to be very, again, Maurice is designing it. So you knew it was going to be pretty fantastical. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's what I got to work with Maurice Sendak on. It was comedy on the bridge and Brundabar and Brundabar was really the, the kind of highlight of the whole thing. Brundabar, uh, Maurice had done, the story of Brundabar as a, a book, which is what inspired Tony to work with him on it because they already knew each other. But Brundabar was a children's opera that was written during the Holocaust. And when the composer uh, was taken away to the camps, he brought it with him. Oh, my God. And so they performed it in the camps, in the camp where he was. Wow. And... Um, uh, not not like multiple camps. Yeah. And so one of the amazing things about that experience, in addition to like so many, to working with Tony Kushner and and Maurice Sendak, was that the uh, the woman, the young woman who played the cat in the camps, came to see the show. No way. Yeah. You have had some transformative experiences on the stage, young lady. I I have I cannot tell you. Like I am so. Like I see everybody running around being like hashtag blessed, and I'm um, which makes me want to vomit in my mouth when people do that. Um, <laughs> but I have many for so many reasons, and I live. Look, I I 
how do I say this? I tend to live in an unhealthy state of not enough. It's not good enough, but not in terms of my life experience. It's more about in terms of what I am contributing to it. Oh, that's interesting. Because for me, I feel a little bit like, um, set line in Hamilton. Why do you write like you're running out of time? Yeah. Feel a little bit like once I finally learned how to not fight the war inside my head against myself and not be depressed or not, not struggle with my own insecurities in that way, but have the, have the battle be, what more can I do out there in the world that's going to help people or that's going to change people or that's going to make a difference or that's going to like, what, how, how do I do more for more people? And the only way I really know, like my language, all this, this whole journey has been storytelling mm-hmm. and whatever, whatever itinerant things come from that, whether it's a, a bigger voice online because of social media, whether it's, I get to talk to people after a show because there's a talk back, whatever it is like that, that has become my not enough. It's not enough. You're not doing enough. You got to mm. do more. You got to, you got to figure out a way to do more. You got to hustle more so you can help more people or so you can have a bigger name. So you get to go donate more to this charity or whatever. And then like, that'll be the war I fight in my head. But when I think about the amount of things I've been and the, and the people with whom I've been allowed to do them, I cannot, I'm jealous of me. <laughs> I, I look at my life and it's just, um, I can't believe I've been allowed to live this life. And I, and, and, and similarly, there's a part of me that's like, wow, I, I'm, I can't believe it took me so long to really appreciate it because I was so busy beating the fuck out of myself on a regular basis for not being enough myself. That's the hard part. It is the hard part. And it's the one thing, you know, I do this show, I have this show called I Am Fun Size that I have on YouTube that is, it came out of wanting to give back to the gaming community that were so, or not the gaming community, the online community that were so generous with me and giving me their fan art and their creativity. And I wanted to give something back. So I started answering questions based on experiences from my own life. And one of the questions that I ask guests on there is, what is a piece of advice you would give to your younger self knowing what you know now? Sure. Yeah. And for me, it's stop lamenting all the things you're not and start focusing on cultivating and enjoying the things you are because those are the things that will make you those are the things that will make your life grand those are the things that the world needs because you are the only you and if without you the world loses that voice it's the whole Agnes de Mille Martha Graham quote you know each one of us has something in ourselves and and we are not meant our job is not to judge it our job is to put it out there and um I, I wish that I had understood that whether it was through depression for a long period of time or, or relationships that didn't serve me or letting myself be tamped down by certain other people because I didn't feel like I was worth it. All of those things ultimately came out of, I'm not good enough. And that is a that is a just losing battle for anyone in any career, in any background of any age to think that of yourself. That is a losing battle to think I'm not good at something enough. I'm going to get better. Different story. But to say I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy of love or happiness or, 
or success or whatever, that doesn't do anyone any good, least of all yourself, but it does no one any good because it keeps you from putting out that unique contribution that you're here to do. And it keeps you from having fun. How did you get to that point? How did you figure that out? Um, <laughs> like uh, hitting rock bottom, really. Um, emotionally? Emotionally, yeah. There, there were, and going through enough, going through enough pain, whether self-inflicted or like emotionally self-inflicted or relationships or whatever, to finally get to a point where that voice inside you says that's enough. Get your shit together. That is. Do enough. you think you could have had the life that you have now had you not gotten to that point of being able to accept the goodness and the wonderful aspects of the life you have now? Yes. I just don't think I would have recognized it. And I, I think more has come to me in the years since I started to accept that. Because look, I still have my days. I'll still wake up in the morning and be like, oh my God, I can't believe you gained so much weight. Or I'll like, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll have those days where I get mad at myself or don't like myself or judge my auditions. Like, it's not like I'm suddenly Buddha or something, but um, or Buddha, I should say, because I'm a real Indian and I pronounce it correctly. Um, but that's a good band name, by the way, suddenly Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I do think things got exponentially better since I started fighting the right battles or fighting more worthy battles mm. than that one. Fighting external because battles, not internal battles. Not just that you can fight internal battles. We all have them and we all have internal struggles that we should be fighting with our better selves and our lesser selves. And you know, the, the self that wants to, the self that wants to pick arguments with strangers on the internet net versus the self that wants to do charity work, you know, like there, there, we all have internal battles and we're all going to be like, that's part of the journey, but fighting, yourself by saying, by just like smushing yourself down and making yourself small. Um, that, that battle, that battle where the voice in my head would just beat the crap out of myself, which is why I would get into relationships. I think where maybe the person I was in the relationship with was not so kind because I treated myself worse than they did. So that didn't matter. I was like, okay, cool. Well, that makes sense in my, my that point of reference that that clicks, that tracks. All right, that's what I deserve. Um, that's that tracks, of course. If someone is telling me how bad I am, they must know something. If someone's right. telling me how good I am, they must be clueless. Um, so I do think good things could have come to me. I don't think the particular path that I'm on. I know I wouldn't be married to the beautiful man that I'm married to. That was actually going to be my next question, just because I wanted to see you smile bigger than I've ever seen you smile. Tell me about your husband. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> His name is Rick Barrio Dill. He is an epic bass player. Um, like I said, his band is Vintage Trouble. Uh, he also is a producer, and he plays a gazillion other instruments, but, uh, but bass is his weapon of choice. Um, and he's just, you know, I've never, I've never met in my lifetime uh, a single person, let alone a man that I was in a romantic relationship with who was even more invested in my own happiness and my own growth and my own being big, despite my, you know, five foot 98 pound frame, like being the biggest me I could. I've never, ever, ever met someone who's more invested in, in watering that flower mm. than him. 
And when I met him was when I was just what I <laughs> just achieving what I call head from ass extraction after my <laughs> previous relationship. And I was just barely like peeking out at the world and being like, oh, look, there's a world out there where people are nice to me. And I was just like just starting to step into my myself and starting to be like, what's this like? And I had just officially moved to Los Angeles and I had just gotten my dog, who is the other love of my life. Nice. And uh, and I auditioned for this show called The Existence, written by an incredible human being named Ty Taylor, who uh, happened to be Rick's best friend, the lead singer in his band, and the lead of the show. And so Ty cast me in the show opposite him, and uh, Rick was in the band for the show, and uh, that became the beginning of a beautiful friendship that then turned into way more. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. And it was so right as I was coming to LA and meeting all these amazing, artistic, loving human beings, he was there meeting them all too, because we ended up with the same kind of larger group of friends at the time. So it was just like, all this happened probably like three months, two or three or four months after I had hit, hit that point where I didn't want to wake up. Yeah. I just wanted to like not be on the planet and a little voice inside my head said, that's fucked up. Get it together. I don't care if you're going to cry all day, cry while you're doing the dishes. Come on, let's go. And then you suddenly found him. And then this entire community of other people came with that. I met him. Yeah. I met him and I met the community and, and it's not like it was all like wine and roses and perfect. Like there was a there were struggle to get to where we are now and, sure. and circumstances and everything. And, and, um, and it also happened to be when his band was, had just formed. And so it was all, um, it was pretty, it was, it's again, like the looking back at the story, when you tell the story, looking back, you see how extraordinary it is in the moment you're mired down in, in the now. Yeah. The minutia. Yeah. And you just don't know. But again, just like that story with my knee injury, you don't know in the moment, but you got to trust as long as you keep moving forward. And as long as you, you know, you somehow trust you will make this story the right story. Not there's some invisible force in the world who has decided it's the right story because I'm too much of a control freak for that. <laughs> I believe in a I believe in a higher power, but I'm not cool with being like, oh, so I'm just a puppet down here. Exactly. I have agency. There's I have I get to decide how hard I how much I screw up before I learn my lessons. Thank you very much. Right. Um, um, but uh, as long as you kind of know that there is I'm going to make sense of this later because it's my life and my life is not a tragedy. So I'm going to make I'm going to make sense of this somewhere down the line. I just don't know how it all tracks now, but that's cool. I'll make it track later. That's that's great advice for that's just acceptance. I mean, that's what you're talking about, accepting. Yeah. Yeah. But also not acceptance without reticence, without like throwing your hands up and being like I I, I okay, fine, whatever. No, you're not surrendering to it. You're just accepting it and moving forward with those parameters. As best you can cuz it's hard. You know, and I, you know, everybody carries shit with them and you carry it until you don't. <laughs> and only you can drop it. Yeah. And that's totally fine. If you want to carry it. I remember in one particular relationship that was very troubled. I remember a friend of mine being like, you know what? You're going to be in it till you're not. Cause she was so tired of telling you the same thing over and over again. Yeah. She's like, you're going to be in it until you're not. That's great advice. And it is, it is. And, uh, and she was right. Um, 
but yeah, it, it's, I, it really is all about storytelling also, isn't it? Like our lives really are what narrative we decide to make of it, what, how we look at the script of what's happened to us and what we do with it going forward and, and how we decide for ourselves, am I the tragic hero? Am I the superhero? Am I just the, you know, am I the lovable loser? You cast yourself every day in your life as who you are. Um, And realizing that you're telling the story, not someone else. Yeah, because no one else is living in your head and no one else is with you 24 hours a day besides you. So you better like make that decision or make those decisions regularly. And if you don't like what you're, if you don't like what you're living, change the story. Only you can do the rewrites. Yeah, exactly. And you can't change the plot points. Shitty things are going to happen. Loved ones are going to pass away and, and accidents will happen. And all of that, that is going to happen. So don't be afraid that the sky is falling. The sky is falling, but be aware that it's not always going. If you're, if you're looking for bliss 24 hours a day, you're on the wrong planet. You, this is not <laughs> the right incarnation for you. Right. But, um, but if you're looking for, and I remember saying this to my husband early in our relationship, like, thank you so much for the, the up, the down, the diagonal, the sideways, because we, we are all over the, we are, our lives are crazy and there are high points and low points and sideways and all of this, but I am here for it because it is a, it is a wild ride and I don't want, I don't want to be bored and I don't want to, I don't want to miss anything. Speaking of constantly moving forward, what's up next for you? What is up next that I can talk about? This is the problem with these days. Everything is, NDA, 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 non-disclosure agreement, non-disclosure agreement. Like all of them. I have some video games coming up I can't talk about. I promise I'll edit it out. I swear I will. Yeah, not going to happen. Um, <laughs> my, I live in fear. I li- like My Achilles heel in the world is I live in fear of getting in trouble. And there is nothing like an NDA to scare the living crap out of you. I remember when I was on The Sopranos and I... You know, I, I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who still hasn't seen it. I know I just I hate spoilers, so I'm just not going to do that. But the episodes I was in have a very, very pivotal thing happen in them. Uh, yeah. And I wouldn't tell I didn't tell my brother. I didn't tell my boyfriend at the time. My boyfriend totally ridiculed me and insulted me for not telling him. And I was like, dude, I, this is a show about the mafia. They're going to come kill me. Like, I can't <laughs> I can't freaking tell you what's going on. It's not going to happen. Um, and my sweet brother was like, just tell me you're not a bada bin girl and we're fine. Uh, <laughs> like I'm not a bada bin girl. You're fine. So, uh, so yeah, I don't really talk about the things. I'm not well, about. then I, I won't force you, but I can't, what, what can I talk about? Um, obviously apex is an ongoing thing and overwatch is an ongoing thing. So those are very exciting. I am fun size is still happening and now I'm doing live streams of it. So you can find that on YouTube and you can find that on Twitch occasionally. Um, I prefer YouTube for it, but, uh, but I think I have a couple of uh, episodes that I did on Twitch. Um, we're going to get off this podcast and be like, Oh yeah, I forgot. I have this thing coming up that I didn't think about. Um, but I tend now because of NDAs, I just forget them because I'm afraid that I, I'm not allowed to talk about them. So I just purposefully forget what I just did and move on to the next thing. So better to give too little information than too much information at this point. Yeah. I will say, I, I will say this. There are a couple of things that I am working on right now that are exceedingly cool, even in light of all the shit that I've done before. 
and I'm really excited. Well, then let's agree to this. When, when those things are allowed to be disclosed and there is no longer an NDA. Come back on your show and we'll talk You will talk come about back them. and we will chat about because there's so much that you've done that I wanted to speak about that we haven't talked about. But what we have talked about means the world to me. And I cannot thank oh. you enough for being a part of this. I am so glad you reached out, Papa Capulet. <laughs> I am so glad. We've come a long way from you lifting me off the stage with my hair. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. People, I just realized that sounded so awful um, uh, on a podcast. It's a scene, you guys. No, it's, it's, to be mean. it's it theater. It's, it's totally it innocent. Don't worry. Look, read Romeo and Juliet and you'll understand it. Get educated, yeah, you'll people. You'll totally get it. You'll totally get it. Be scared of Papa Cap, but not this Papa Cap, because I love you, John Lister. I'm so glad you're doing this. I can't think of a, a, a more jovial and lovely human to be doing this. Oh, that's with. so sweet of you. And thank you so much for being a part of it. You're someone that I thought of when I started this, and I'm glad I've got you on uh, on record now. Um, Anjali Bamani, thank you for being a part of the art in yourself. Thank you. Take care. The Art in Yourself is produced at Double Vanity Studios. Cover art by Touchstone Graphic Design. Cover photo by Joe Mazza at Brave Lux. Theme music by JQN Musique. I'm John Lister. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>